John 15 is where we're going to be today. Uh, and I just ask a, a few questions as we get started here. How many people in this room know what an op ord is? How many people know what an op ord is? An op ord. Can we just put it up there so we see what we're talking about? Because you might not know what I'm saying. So how many know what an op ord is? Some of you. Ah, yeah. Okay. Ed knows what an op ord is. Uh, logically, that kind of makes sense. Okay. So uh, this is what an op ord is. Op ord is short for operation orders. It's short for operation orders. So, of course, Ed would know, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, so it's, it's a military term referring to a commanding officer's orders about how a field mission will be conducted. That's what an op ward is. So you could expect to see the following things in an op ward. You could see mission objectives. What are we going to accomplish on our field mission? You could see rules of engagement. How ought we behave as we're in the field? What are the kind of boundaries around our behavior that help us to engage? Uh, You get instruction about the chain of command. To whom will we listen? If we can't hear our commanding officer, then who is in charge after our commanding officer? An op ord gives us that kind of information. Logistics. How will we get the necessary resources while we're in the field to be able to accomplish the mission? And then you could see uh, something like a risk assessment. Where are the vulnerabilities? Where do we need to keep our eyes open? What do we need to be watching out for? So why do commanding officers give this kind of thing? Well, you know what? If you go into a field mission... Figuring this stuff out in the moment is very difficult. That's why you plan ahead of time for, the, for all of the different contingencies, all of the things that you might encounter. You communicate that plan to the people who are on the team so that everybody is aware of when certain things happen, who do I listen to, how will we get what we need, and all of that good stuff. This is especially true when the commander can't be in the field because uh, when the mission has multiple moving parts and not everyone is together at the same time, people need to know who they're going to look to and who they're going to listen to. So the commander knows that he's going to be separated from his crew. He's very intentional, actually, with this op board so that even though he's not present with them, they know what they need in order for this mission to be a success. So, so John 14 through 16, which is kind of the chunk of scripture that we find ourselves in that we're going to be digging into. It is an intimate moment between Jesus and his disciples. There's this kind of sharing of uh, words of love and concern for his disciples. It's uh, kind of the longest, uh, one of the longest kind of sheer passages of just Jesus just talking to his disciples that we get. And, um, It's not just that. It's not only Jesus expressing his love to his disciples. If you look at how Jesus is saying what he's saying, how he is going about instructing his disciples and what he's telling them, it's not just him conveying his love for them. Because Jesus sees a future in which he will die. And that even after he rises, he will not be physically present with his disciples. So last week we did a kind of a broad overview of events leading up to this moment. And we watched Judas take bread with Jesus and then leave to betray him. And then right after Judas leaves the room, Jesus says these words in John 13, 33, little children. 
yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And then uh, a little later he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Saying to his disciples, you've been used to me being here with you in the field. We've been doing ministry together, but I'm not going to be here much longer. And you are not able to follow me where I'm going to go. You're going to be here and I'm going to be there. I'm going, but you know what? After I go, there's still work to do. There's still something that has to be done. So, so, so Jesus, as he sees his imminent departure coming, what he's doing is he's issuing an op ord to his disciples. He's giving them instructions for how they are to operate in the field while he's gone. He's essentially saying, I'm, you know, I'm going away, but there's still something to do. He says, here's what you will accomplish. Here's how you're to behave. Here's who will give you additional orders in the field. Here's how you will get the resources that you need. Here are the vulnerabilities that you need to be aware of. So verse 34 of John 13. Jesus goes on and he says, after he says, I'm only going to be with you a little longer, right? Uh, Where I'm going, you can't go with me. Verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, right? I have new orders for you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then in verse 35, he kind of clarifies the reasoning behind this. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, for one another. So what, what have we been saying? We're getting ready to step into an identity change as a church. We're going to uh, move away from Alliance Bible Church. We are going to become Renovation Church as a congregation. And we have been saying that the reason for that is that we are all stories that God is writing about Jesus making things new. Like each of us is a story that God is writing about Jesus making things new. Right? So, so the purpose of all we do is so that we could convey to the world something about Jesus who is able to make things new. The mission that we are setting out to accomplish is telling the world about this reality that Jesus makes things new. And that's what Jesus says here. In verse 35, he says, by this, by your love for one another, an example of how he makes things new. By this, all people will know you are my disciples. So the mission objective, and this is, he kind of lays it out right after he says, I'm going away for a little while. Here's the mission objective. Helping the world see Jesus, whom we follow. That's the mission objective. Helping the world see Jesus, whom we follow. Everything Jesus has to say is about that. It's aimed at that. That's why today we're starting this series called Departing Orders, because Jesus's earthly ministry, it is coming to a close and he's going to hand responsibility for that ministry over to his disciples and for what it's worth by extension to us. We are the recipients of the ministry that they've been passing on. As Christ followers, we hold responsibility for helping the world find and follow Jesus. And this very intimate moment between Jesus and his disciples, it helps us understand kind of how we are to handle the responsibility that we've been given, right? These words aren't just for the disciples. They're for all Jesus followers, right? So throughout this series, in light of the mission objective, what we're going to do is we're going to explore four departing orders that Jesus gives to his disciples. And the first one this week, we are considering his order to abide. Next week, we'll talk about his order to love 
And week three, we'll talk about his order to listen. And then finally, in week four, we'll talk about his order to take heart. But this week, today, we explore the order to abide. So John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, as you think about this kind of interaction between Jesus and his disciples, at least, you know, without uh, being intentional, one of the ways that I have thought of this, I, I just kind of thought John 14 through 17 was all happening in the upper room. But if you look back at the very end of verse 14, Jesus says, rise, let us get up from here. The idea is that they're, they're moving. There's some movement happening. Let us go. And so, so they get up from dinner and they're walking together towards their next destination, very likely the Garden of Gethsemane, because this is Jesus' last day before he's crucified. So as they walk, I think it's possible that they either come across some image of vines or they see a wine press or they actually pass a vineyard or they see an olive tree. They see something and Jesus takes the opportunity to convey to them something about the mission that they have to accomplish. So verses 1 and 2 kind of give an overview. He kind of sets the foundation of the idea out in front of the disciples and introduces four main characters to them. He introduces himself. He is the vine, the source of life. He introduces the father, who is the vine dresser, right? The one who is there to ensure that the vine remains fruitful. Uh, He introduces those who we could recognize as true followers of Jesus, which are the branches that bear fruit. And then he introduces what we could consider fake followers of Jesus, the branches that are thrown away. Now, it's important that we don't lose track of what just happened in the story, right? Uh, this, This kind of particular thing that Jesus is saying, it occurs in a broader context, right? So, uh, it says, let's just zero in on something. It says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. The word used in this context of metaphor, like, uh, It's the same word that Jesus used earlier. So if we think about what's been happening, you had this, uh, you know, Jesus came in, the triumphal entry, and then uh, the disciples all go with Jesus together to the upper room, and Jesus washes their feet, and there's this whole kind of intimate interaction, and then this thing happened with Judas, where Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and then uh, we find out as the readers that it's actually Judas that's going to betray him, right? All of this takes place, And this word prunes is very unique because after he washes the disciples' feet, he uses the same word to make this note in John 13, 10, and 11. He says, you are clean, but not every one of you. For he who was to betray him, that was why he said, not all of you. He knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. That word clean and the word prune are the same exact word. It's the same exact word in the Greek language, right? Which means that as Jesus is, when Jesus says clean in the context of the metaphor, it makes sense to translate it as prune, right? But when he's talking about in the context of washing, it makes sense to translate it as clean, right? So Jesus says these words about being pruned and being clean after 
all the disciples had just witnessed Judas walk out of the room. Right? He's drawing their attention back to that moment when they all understood, because he said it, one of you is a fake. One of you is a fraud. One of you is a branch that will be thrown away. So like one out of 12, that's 8%. One out of 12 is 8%. Imagine Jesus walked in and said, you know what? 8% of you are fake. About 8% of you are fake. 8% of you are in danger of judgment of hell. I don't know about you, but I might be inclined to start freaking out just a little bit. Uh, Is it me? am, Am I not genuine? Am I not pruned, like he said? Luckily, Jesus does not leave them in their anxiety for long, because this is what he says in verse 3. The people that he's talking to, the remaining 11, he says to them, Already you are clean, pruned, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus is being gracious here. He doesn't want them to have any confusion about what he's saying, so he removes their anxiety by saying, None of you with me now are in danger of being thrown away. Why? Because you listen to my teaching and you let it prune you. You listen to my teaching and you let it clean you. Jesus says, if you want assurance, look for two things. Number one, look for fruit. Number two, look for pruning. That's what he's saying. And then in verse four, Jesus tells them how a person goes about bearing fruit, and being pruned. Both are things which you cannot make happen to yourself, but Jesus talks about what is required for a person to bear fruit and be pruned. John 15, verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. This is Jesus' op word to them about logistics. How are you going to get what you need? How will you remain secure in the midst of your vulnerabilities? How will you actually be able to help the world see me? How will you bear fruit and receive pruning from the Father? Abide. This word conjures up ideas of finding a place to call home, right? That's how we use the word abide most frequently, is the place that we reside, the place that we come back to time and again. It gives the idea that you would have a place to find rest, uh, this uh, kind of place that is safe and reliable for you. So I, I'm going to do a practice, fill in the blank for me. Home is where the... Very good. You guys are so good at that. Thank you. It's the place that the heart returns to. That the place that the heart seeks for safety. Another way that I think of it is your heart's home is whatever your enough is. That when you go back there, you say, this is enough. This is good. This is where I have rest. If I, have, uh, if I lose everything, but I still hold on to this, I have enough. If I lose this, everything else falls apart. This is your enough. Jesus is saying, find your enough in me. Right? I love you. 
I hold eternity. Let your soul say of me, when all else fails, he remains. Verse 4. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He says the same thing several times in a row, right? He says, abide, abide. Abide. The branch abides in the vine. You need to abide in me because it's that important. But think about the implications of it. What attitude had these disciples already shown that displayed their abiding, right? Because he says, you're already pruned. You're already being pruned. This process is already, already happening because you're letting my word, my teaching clean you, prune you, right? That's, that's the action that they're showing. They hear Jesus' words, and they do them. Remember when Jesus said uh, he, was, he was with all of these people. They tried to make him king, the people on the other side of the lake, after he fed 5,000 people. Uh, they, they were, uh, Jesus was standing up there, and they were getting ready to make him king. They wanted to crown him king, and this would have been a big problem for timing in terms of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus goes across the lake to the other side. Right? But all of these people, they follow him. They like find ways to get around the lake because they still want to go with him where he is. So, so he ends up in the synagogue and he's talking and he says some really difficult stuff until the point when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yeah, and then um, everybody left. <laughs> They're like, that's not our game, man. Sorry, I, I, I thought this was something else, but, uh, but I'm not in for that. Everybody left except 12 people, his disciples. And Jesus looked at them and he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. We've got nothing else. Nothing else can give us the life that you have to give us. The disciples have already displayed this attitude that all that they have, their enough is found in Jesus, his words, what he has to give. And Jesus' command to them is keep abiding like that. And then he issues a challenging kind of word of warning. It helps them understand what will happen to Judas and what will happen to anyone who finds their home elsewhere. In verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withered, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This is simple reality. Jesus isn't issuing a threat. He's just stating things as they are. He has clarified time and again, before I showed up, there was not life. I'm here now, and the only source of life is me. Life is found in me. Everything else is a ploy of the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Every other person, uh, every other place that you might find home will at the end of the day be proven to be fraudulent and will result in facing judgment. That was the only choice on the table. I'm here as life. And this is crucial because right now we live in a place where it's really easy 
to claim to be a Christian while your soul is abiding in something else. Other places in the world, it is not easy to claim to be a Christian. It's not easy at all. In fact, it's quite hard. Your life is in danger if you tag the title of Christian onto your life. But here, it's actually like in some circumstances, you get a little bit more status if you tag Christian onto your life. It's relatively easy to claim to be a Christian and actually have your soul abiding in something else. So so I just want to think about this because this warning, I just want to draw our attention to the possibilities of things that we could be inclined to abide in. Right? So if there if you're a student in school, right, a significant number of things could come about while you're in school that that you could be deceived to abide in, right? One of those things is good grades. Now don't get me wrong, good grades are a good thing. Right? Future possibilities are a good thing, and the better your grades are, the, the better your future possibilities are, and just so happens the better, uh, the, the more opportunities for idolatry that you have in your future too. Right? You could be deceived to abide in achievement. You could be deceived to abide in your friends, to call that your place of safety, to call that your enough. You could be deceived into finding your own unique identity, which is what today is all about, right? Find out who you are for yourself and just be you. And then if you can discover that, you'll be good. Your social status, you could be deceived to put your identity in any of those things, to abide in them, and all of them, you know, they do have the ability to give you a sense of temporary peace. Right? If you seek them and you pursue them and then you actually find what you're looking for. Right? But, but if you abide in them long enough, the reality is, is that they will come up empty. They will not be able to provide a place of security for you. In the long run, my prayer for you would be that you discover this side of the end of your life that they can't provide a place of security for you. I think of, oh, here we go. I think of approaching, the idea of approaching Christianity as American civil religion. This is what I mean, because I know that's kind of confusing, so give me a chance here. There is a strong temptation in the United States. Now, I know that there's a, a, a bunch of conversation about uh, secularism and people, you know, who, who want to encourage atheism and that kind of stuff. I know that, that we hear things like that, but I want to tell you that in the United States, there is still a strong temptation to make religion a piece of our life, a strong, actually, encouragement to make religion a piece of our life, a piece that we engage once in a while that we consider to be a valuable part, but that we don't abide in because that's what crazy people do. Crazy people abide in their religion. We don't do that. It's just a nice part of our life because we already have enough, right? We have a good career. We have a nice family that we love to pour into. We have an endless litany of entertainment sources available to us that we could distract ourselves on end for hours and hours. We have money to buy the things that we want. We have homes to live in without fear of what's going to happen to our body. You know what? We have enough, and so it's okay for religion to kind of identify us as good people and be a part of our lives, but uh, we wouldn't want to abide and that kind of a thing. 
And the great danger is that people add religion onto their life as a simple improvement and convince themselves that the fruit of that simple improvement that they made, oh, my life is more comfortable now. So, so it must be working, right? It must actually be a good thing that I've tacked on. And at the end of the day, for all of that to be exposed as empty. Jesus, on the other hand, says, don't just tack me on as a part. He says, abide in me. Find home in me. Find enough in me, and you will bear much fruit. So this is one part of our operation orders. Something that we seriously need to consider in the responsibility that Jesus has given us, then we need to answer two questions. The first question that we need to answer is, what is this fruit that he speaks of? The second question that we need to answer is, how do I abide? Uh, So, so if fruit, if it's the marker of knowing that I'm abiding, then I actually need to know what to look for, right? I need to know what to be able to observe. And, and with abiding, if my soul's life and death are dependent on whether or not I am abiding, I need to know how to do this measurably, right? So first question, what is the fruit? So remember Judas. Judas was our example, right? Our example of one who did not bear fruit, who was being thrown into the fire, right? So we can look at him. And actually start to understand something of what Jesus thinks fruit is by considering what it isn't. Right? So, so let's talk about what fruit isn't. Fruit cannot be, if, if we're looking at Judas's example, fruit cannot be, number one, attending worship services. Fruit cannot be, number two, enjoying great Bible teaching. Number three, fruit cannot be acknowledging Jesus' power or uniqueness. Now, and, and then number four, fruit cannot be effective ministry. Let me tell you what I mean by each of these things. Judas went to synagogue. Right? He went regularly. He sat at Jesus' feet, at Jesus' taught. You want to talk about somebody who has a great attendance record for worship services, Judas has got it at the top of his list, right? Judas had the greatest Bible teacher in the world with him all the time and was very encouraged by the things that Jesus had to say. He followed Jesus for three years, listening to the things that Jesus had to say. Judas definitely acknowledged Jesus' power and uniqueness. right? Because when all of the other people left, when Jesus said that crazy thing about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, Judas did stay in that moment. And, you know, it's worth considering, too. Jesus, at one point, he sent out uh, disciples to go all over the ten towns to the Decapolis. He sent people out to do ministry. Judas was among those that he sent out to do ministry, to go heal, cast out demons, preach about the kingdom of God. It's worth saying, you know, Judas probably had effective ministry. Right? But if Jesus is talking about fruit, and Jesus is saying... Anybody who gets thrown into the fire doesn't have fruit, and Judas had all of those things, then those things cannot be what Jesus means when he says fruit. So let's define fruit as it seems Jesus and the other writers of the New Testament understand it. Fruit is inward transformation from me-centered to God-centered 
that is both enduring and increasingly visible. I remember our mission objective, right? We help the world see Jesus whom we follow. The fruit is how the world will see Jesus, right? The inner transformation that he is doing inside of us as we abide, that becoming increasingly visible. Just look at verse 8, if you have your Bibles, because it's not going to be up on the screen. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. In your bearing of fruit, as you abide, you will be able to display to the world who Jesus is. So if that's fruit, fruit is inward transformation from me-centered to God-centered that is both enduring and increasingly visible. If that's fruit, then it's worth asking, what are the measurable indicators of fruit in our lives? What are the measurable indicators of fruit in our lives? I want to give you four indicators of fruit. Number one, increasingly. This is how all of them start. They all start increasingly, right? Increasingly, you will see sincere brokenness over sin that results in confession and repentance. Increasingly, you will see sincere brokenness over sin that results in confession and repentance. Remember the story of Peter? Peter, uh, Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny knowing me three times before the rooster crows. He said, no way, I would die for you. And then Peter denies him three times before the rooster crows. And, uh, and we get to the, the end of the story after Jesus is raised from the dead. And Jesus is on the shore and uh, Peter sees him. He's out in the boat and Peter can't wait to get back to Jesus Once he sees the risen Jesus, he jumps out of the boat while everybody kind of rows the boat back up to the shore. And he goes up to Jesus and recognizing his sin, repented and Jesus restores him. Right, And then from that point, he became willing to boldly preach and eventually even be executed for Jesus. I would say that's enduring and visible. Right? Those are are two realities that occur that are the result of his confession and repentance. Right? Number two, the second indicator of fruit. Increasingly, you would see Jesus' values are becoming your values. John 15, 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So prayer is an opportunity for us to communicate our heart to God. And and whatever comes out of your prayer life and your interaction with God, it is a symptom of your alignment with God or the degree to which you are aligned with God. Right. So the person whose soul is abiding with God in Jesus, their values will begin to align more and more with Jesus. And as a result, they'll be aligned more and more with God so that... When the person prays, you'll find that they're praying more and more things that are actually according to God's will. And then you find as they reinforce what God is doing with their prayers that you actually see things start to happen. Right? Right? So sometimes, does he answer your prayers? Well, God answers all prayers that are according to his will. And the more your soul abides with Jesus, the more your prayers will align with his will. Third indicator of fruit. Increasingly, you will see a willingness to follow Jesus' commands. 
John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, so no, one, no one perfectly desires to read and obey Jesus' words. Right? No, this is like none of us in this room perfectly desires to read and obey Jesus' words. But the question is, is it growing? Is it, are you seeing an increasing desire? Is there even an inkling of a desire that is rooted in love for Jesus that simply wants to figure out how to obey his commands because whatever he wants is enough for you. He is enough for you. And number four, increasingly, you see joy and happiness in glorifying God more than yourself. Verse 11 of John 15, this is how Jesus kind of uh, ends this first section about the vine. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Right, the true Christian, the one whose soul is abiding in Jesus, is finding more and more joy in bringing God glory. Notice here, with all of these, the standard is not perfection. And it's even not a series of behaviors that you could look at behaviors and say, look at that behavior, that must check it off the list, I must be okay. It is primarily a trajectory of transformation that is becoming increasingly visible. Okay, so that's fruit. The second question then was, how do I abide? Right, if this is what my soul relies upon. Now, consider with me the, the indicators of fruit that we just talked about because the abiding aligns with the indicators of fruit. Right, so, so I'm just going to tell you things that, that happen to align with the indicators of fruit as you learn to find Jesus to be your enough. Right? So number one, choose confession and repentance. As you listen to Jesus' words, as you interact with him, you are undoubtedly going to discover that you have fallen short in some way. And the invitation for you is to confess and repent. And I just want to kind of give a clarifying word here. You can certainly confess to Jesus and Jesus will hear your confession and you can repent to Jesus and Jesus will hear your repentance and that will be enough. But you know what particularly helps me in my repentance is if I go to a brother and sister in my confession and say, I've made this error and I'm recognizing that I need to repent. And so I'm telling you, not necessarily so that you'll hold me accountable, although you can certainly help me do that, but my being willing to verbalize it to a brother or sister in Christ actually enables, is, is an act of commitment on my part to actually follow through with the repentance, right? So, uh, so choose confession and repentance. Do whatever it takes to change and, and make the thing right that you have done wrong. And if you're connected to the vine, here's the joy. Apparently, being connected to the vine helps us follow through with these things and carry through with them. Number two, let Jesus expose and change your values. As you read the word, align your heart and your mind with Christ. When your ideas collide with Jesus' ideas, lay your ideas down and submit to his. 
Number three, willingly say yes to Jesus' commands. When your body and mind want to sin, you choose to say no to the thing that you want so that you can learn to say yes to the thing that Jesus wants. And Jesus says, this is an act of love. To obey my commands is how you love me. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. And then finally, verse 4. Start celebrating what Jesus celebrates. When you hear of a life changed by something that Jesus has done, Get interested in that thing. Say, that's, that's really cool. When you hear of someone taking a step of faith, let your soul say, that is really cool. I'm very encouraged by that. When you see God moving in a particular way, celebrate it. When you see someone repent or someone who's rocked by the grace of Jesus in an incredible way or people who are praying and being changed, celebrate those things. Can I tell you, there's something really cool happening right now. I don't know if you all heard about it. But on Wednesday... About 10 o'clock, there was a chapel service, Asbury Theological Seminary. And, uh, and the guy got up there and preached the word and then finished preaching. And normally what you do at the end of the service is everybody goes out and leaves, but something was happening. I, I, what is the something? I can't even describe it to you other than the Holy Spirit is there in that place. And, uh, and people stayed. So people stayed, you know, it was like, you know, chapel service at 10, and people stayed until lunch, and then after lunch, people were still there. And then uh, people, people stuck around in the service, worshiping God, praying, confessing sin, all of this stuff. People stuck around uh, until 5 o'clock. And then uh, people stuck around through the whole night, praying, confessing sin, worshiping Jesus. And then all the next day, I have a few friends of mine, a, a doctoral student I know who's at Asbury, and then a, 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 a teacher at Asbury. The next day, all through the day, the same thing, genuine, heartfelt worship, not compelled. Nobody is required to be there. The the chapel service ended at 12 o'clock on Wednesday, but they're there all day Thursday and also there all day Friday. And last I checked in the middle of the day yesterday, they were still gathered together in that chapel, people praying and confessing and worshiping and recognizing Jesus for who he is. And there's a genuine move of the spirit happening there at Asbury. It's amazing. It's something to celebrate, right? So when we see stuff like that, that's stuff that we should get excited about. Right? We see that God is up to something and we celebrate. And those are like, as we learn to turn our hearts towards those things, to celebrate and get excited about those things, that is something that more firmly helps us to abide. So what? Number one, change your definition of fruit. Something has happened over the last, I think, 40 years. Maybe it's just me. Could be wrong. But I think. Maybe others of us might have come to believe this as well. Something has happened over the last 40 years in which we have allowed our definition of fruit to primarily refer to numerical ministry impact. That when we think of the word fruit, what we say is how many souls has a person saved? How many people are attending the church or the study that that person is leading or the thing that that person is doing? How many podcast downloads does that 
person have? Uh, what is the number of people who are uh, a part of the thing that you are doing to, to draw Jesus uh, and, and draw people towards Jesus? But that is not the fruit that Jesus is talking about. That's not what he's talking about here. Jesus, for Jesus, fruit is two things. Relationship, transformation, right? That, that you would be increasingly loving me, building your relationship with me, growing close to me, finding me to be enough for you. And that as you do that, it would just be making new works happen all the time inside of you. Fruit. His heart's coming into alignment with his heart. Fruit is sin that's being abandoned and grace that's being extended to a neighbor and loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you and sacrificing comfort for the sake of the kingdom. Fruit is learning to engage your neighbors in spiritual conversation and learning to love and share Jesus with them. And as you abide and bear fruit, the world is increasingly able to see Jesus through you. So let's fix our definition of fruit. And then the second thing is this. Repent and find home in Jesus. Repentance means to turn and change. Turn your soul to Jesus. So for true followers of Jesus, as we hear this call to abide, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are, are we finding ourselves maybe disconnected to some degree from the vine? My encouragement to you as a follower of Jesus is to remember that he is enough. Remember that he is enough because the reason you're disconnecting yourself is because you have been convinced that something else might be enough. He is enough. For fake followers of Jesus who probably likely know who they are, the warning is that the thing that you think is enough, the thing that you're going to for your sustenance, the thing that you are looking to and saying, I'm going to hold on to this with all, like I'm going to white knuckle and hold on to this with all my dear life because this is what I trust more than Jesus. Right? That thing that you think is enough is actually empty and it will kill you. So uh, the encouragement to you is come home. Right? Find your home in Jesus. Abide in him. And then for for people who don't know where they're at with Jesus, or you're trying to figure out where you're at with Jesus, or you haven't quite, quite crossed the line of faith yet, I want you to hear this. The maker of your soul has been graciously showing you that he is enough for you. And he's inviting you to come home. He offers it freely. He says, start fresh with me through faith in Jesus. I'm home. Would you pray with me, please? Jesus, I thank you that you have provided a place for our souls that is safe and secure and that is enough. That when all else could be lost, we could hold on to this and still say that we have all that we need. Jesus, but I I know that we are quite easily convinced and inclined to try to pursue other things as if they can be enough for us. I know my own soul that I am quite inclined 
to be distracted, to have it pop in, my flesh will ask the question, could that be enough? Jesus, I thank you for the reminder that you are enough. And I pray for all of us as we see these various distractions that might come across our way to to consistently be reminded to abide, to let our enough be you, to hear your words and let them change how we think and hear your words and let them change what we do and how we interact. Lord, to simply abide in you and to find joy in the things that you find joy in. Thank you, Jesus, for these gifts to us. Thank you for your instruction to us, for helping us understand how it is that we're to engage in this life that you've called us to and this mission that you've called us to. We trust you to more and more be showing us what it is that you desire of us. Pray that you would help all of us to be able to abide as we go. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.